Paul is continuing his illustration, and I've used um, the past couple of weeks um, the illustration of clothing here, and I'm going to bring these back out, keep my props going. Okay, so we had these, we've been using these for three weeks now, and he starts in chapter 4. He begins to talk about putting off and putting on. And the picture here is of, of us putting off old, filthy, um, sin-ridden clothing that is of our old nature and putting on the new nature. And this isn't something that we can somehow muster up the strength to do in and of ourselves. It's something that is happening if someone truly has learned Christ, if someone truly has become a believer, if someone truly has been changed, then their life is a constant pattern of putting off the old and putting on the new. And so Paul gives us this image of taking one set of clothing off and putting another set of clothing on. And so I've entitled some of these sermons in this series, Dress Differently, that we are called to dress differently. And if you'll recall, as we went through um, chapter 4, we, we looked at how uh, Paul tells us to put off the filthy rags of dishonesty and put on truthfulness, to put off the filthy rags of unrighteous rage and to put on righteous indignation, to put off the filthy rags of deceitful gain and to put on generosity-enabling hard work, to put off the filthy rags of of destructive words and to put on words that edify and to put off the filthy rags of devouring attitudes and to put on brotherly love. And last week we dug into that one a little bit more. We dug into what love looks like, how we are to be imitators of God. And last week kind of carrying on the same theme of clothing here, I showed you a a, a magazine that had pictures of people wearing clothes for some sort of a department store and talk about how how these clothing, these good deeds, these, these things that we are to put on are, are modeled. And how are they modeled to us? They are modeled to us in the very nature and character of God. And therefore, we are to be imitators of God. And so last week, we looked at this love, this bitterness-killing love. is a love that is kind and sensitive toward others, forgiving and giving towards others, and sweet and pleasing to God. So today, we're going to look at this way of life this way of living, this walk of love even more. And we're going to look at another area in this walk. As Paul, in chapter, verse 2 here, he says, talks about us walking in love. Another area of this walk that we are to put off, something we're to put off, and something we are to put on. And so the image I want us to have today, I've got another illustration with clothes this morning. This time I brought some shoes. So I love to have the kids interact with me here some. All right, I've got two different shoes here. This is not mine. All right, two different shoes here. Now, if someone's going to run a marathon, kids, which one is the proper fitting shoe to wear, to run, to use for a marathon? Okay, all right. Now, obviously, this is the shoe that is the right shoe to wear if you're going to run a marathon or if you're going to go on a long walk or whatever else. This would probably not be comfortable. Matter of fact, it would probably be painful if you were to use this as the shoe you were to run your marathon with. And so if someone showed up to a marathon with this shoe on, they would be considered foolish. They would be considered ridiculous. And people would say that that shoe is not fitting. It is not proper for the race that they are about to run. Well, there's this phrase here in today's passage that where Paul talks about this uh, certain things, certain ways of conduct that are not fitting, that are not proper for saints, that are not proper for Christians. If you look at verse um, four, 3 and verse 4, he says it twice. 
He he talks about a certain conduct that's not proper among the saints. And then in verse 4, he talks about uh, conversation, words that come out of our mouth that are out of place. And so this morning, kind of continuing our theme of clothes, I want us to think about what we're talking about this morning as something that is out of place, that's not proper, that's not fitting for true saints. Now, we ended last week with a focus on the true, Christ-exalting, God-imitating love that we are called to walk in. The love that can only exist in those who are truly children of love, those who are truly children of God. Verse 1 said, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we are called to love, and we can only love because he's first loved us, according to 1 John 4.19. Love characterizes the children of God. Love is our way of life. We walk in love. It is our lifestyle. But for everything that God establishes in goodness and holiness and purity, Satan will then seek to distort and he will provide a counterfeit. So we see a contrast here between the love that we are called to walk in contrasted against the lust that the world practices. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Paul wants the Ephesians to see the contrast between self-sacrificing love and self-indulgent lust. Ephesus was a city filled with rampant sexual immorality. Now, I know because we are a church where the generations converge and the children are here with us, I want to be careful how much detail I go into as I describe these things, but I also do not want to be a pastor who jumps over passages of Scripture because they're difficult to preach. So, parents, you may have some discussions when you go home, but that's okay. Ephesus was filled with rampant sexuality. There was a temple there to the, to the goddess Diana or Artemis. And part of the means by which people worshipped that goddess was to engage in sexual activity with the cult prostitutes. It was a major part of what went on in Ephesus. The goddess itself is this grotesque-looking figure of this multi-breasted woman-slash-fish-looking thing. It was grotesque. It was horrible-looking. But sexuality and, and immoral sexual practices were a key part in the way that the people in Ephesus practiced worship for that goddess. And so it infected everything. Matter of fact, you'll see when we jump back into Acts here pretty soon that, that Ephesus was so infected by the worship of Diana that it ended up causing a riot in Ephesus when Paul was having such effective witness in the city that people were beginning to throw away their idols and the idol makers got upset. And so the, the commerce of the city, uh, politics of the city, everything was tied to this temple um, to Diana. And so sexual immorality was rampant in the city there. Now, because of some of our technical difficulties this morning, I do not have the notes for you on the screen, so I'm just going to read them to you, and you will have to fill them in as I read them. Here's your first point. Here's the first point I want to make today. Lustful, self-indulgent conduct and conversation are not fitting for the true Christ follower who is walking in love. Self-lustful, self-indulgent conduct and conversation are not fitting for the true Christ follower who is walking in love. I need to keep my water close to me. 
Again, verse 3, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish, con- foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place. Sexual immorality, first let's look at the conduct here. Verse 3 deals with conduct. Sexual immorality, the word there is pornea. You don't have to be very creative to figure out what other words we get in our English from that word. Pornea is a broad term to include all sorts of sexual activity that diverts from God's intended design. It's most commonly refers to simply sex outside of the marriage relationship. But it is broader than that as well. Then the next word is impurity. This refers to anything unclean or impure, but used in connection with sexual immorality. It refers to sexual practices that were particularly unclean or gross. Usually this word impurity was connected with the practice of homosexuality. So you have not only sexual immorality, which usually refers to sex outside of marriage, fornication, but this impurity takes it farther and goes into other practices such as homosexuality. Covetousness is translated in some places as greed, is an insatiable desire to have what you cannot have. Connected with sexuality, it refers to this unending um, appetite to, be, to feed yourself with sexual diversions. It's a deep discontentment in the soul that leads to cravings, dominating cravings that go against God. Verse 5 clarifies for us, as does Colossians 3, 5, that covetousness is actually idolatry. When our heart refuses its rightful king, we fill the throne with someone or something else. But we are never content Instead, we keep on craving for the next thing, the next object to satisfy that discontentment. And when we go after sexuality in a way that's not pleasing to God, in the way the world would have us do it, men and women simply become objects of our obsession and our covetousness. And sex is devalued to a gross exercise of never-ending self-indulgence instead of what God designed it to be. The beautiful and satisfying act that God designed it to be. Modern sexuality is nothing modern at all. The sexual, quote-unquote, revolution of the 60s was no revolution. 2,000 years ago, Ephesus had already had that revolution. Modern sexuality is nothing modern at all. It's nothing more than men acting like animals, driven by our glandular impulses and desires. The world likes to talk about men evolving If you don't need any other evidence that men are not evolving but devolving, just look at the way people treat sex in our world. We act no different than the animals. So first of all, Paul's concerned with conduct, but he's also concerned with their conversation. He talks about what comes out of your mouth. Filthiness. This is referring to vulgarity, dirty speech, vile, degrading talk. Foolish talk is derived from the Greek word moros. So moron, moron speech. It's connected with filthiness. It means cheap or mindless obscenities. And crude joking. This is cheap laughs, suggestive speech, and innuendo. This is what comes out of the mouth. So we as believers are to be putting this stuff off. This should not be happening. Any crude talk, any, any crude joking, any foolish talk, any vulgarity coming out of our mouths or our fingers should not be happening for a believer. Crude joking, I find this one in particularly, you, you go to, uh, if you watch a comedian on TV, 
you really can't watch very many of them because so much of the stuff that they're saying is crude and, and nasty. And it's very easy to get laughs through sexuality, isn't it? I remember a show back in the 90s. The very first season of the show had very clever writing. It seemed like a pretty good show. It was fairly clean. And it was very clever. And the, the writing was good. But the next season, it was like the, the, the writers lost all creativity. And all the jokes became about sex. That's cheap laughs. Anybody can write a joke about sex. That's cheap. That's not even, that's mindless. And that's what our world is filled with. You can't turn on the TV today without going through the, the you go through the networks and it's just cheap, vulgar, crude joking. This is not the way we are to live. We are not to think that these things are trivial matters. We'll see that in a bit. But first, let us look at the replacement. What are we to put on if we are to put these things off? Now, what would you expect? What would you expect for Paul to say here that we're to put on when we put these things off? We're supposed to put off all this the sexual immorality and this filth, put that off? Would you think, well, put on self-control, put on um, you know, right thinking, put on purity? No, he gives us one word, which, which just kind of sums it all up. He says to put on thanksgiving. So my second point today is this. Conversely... The true Christ follower who is walking in love is fitted with gratitude, which in turn kills lustful self-indulgence. Gratitude. So how do we fight lustful self-indulgence? How do we fight it? We fight it with gratitude. It may seem kind of strange. Thanksgiving. Well, if you think about it, especially when you think about how all this is attached to covetousness, Covetousness is this idolatry of the heart that wants more, more, more. Feed me, feed me, feed me. And gratitude works in 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 opposite way than covetousness. It believes that God is on our side, working all things together for good. That's what gratitude is all about. It believes, it believes with all its heart that God is on our side. And that he's working all things together for good. It accepts all things, including discipline, from his hands. It recognizes God as a good father, giving good gifts. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It celebrates his gifts as good. Gifts like sex. It is the world, not God, who treats good gifts as filthy and trivial. People think Christians think sex is nasty. No. Christians think sex is great. It's from God and it's good. It's the world that has taken it and made it into something nasty. And that's what we're not all about. And so good gifts are from God. It acknowledges, gratitude acknowledges our total dependence upon God. Gratitude is the opposite of selfishness, self-indulgence, in that it's totally focused on God and acknowledges Him for who He is, namely, our all-sufficient provider. I will praise the name of God with a song, says the psalmist. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. Gratitude magnifies God, demonstrates to the world who He is. Gratitude says... In God I have all that is good for me and I will not be driven to dishonor him and his name in order to please my flesh with less than satisfying things like improper sex or toys or money or popularity or you fill in the blank. Gratitude says I'm not going to settle for the counterfeit. I want the real thing. I want God. Finally, 
Gratitude enthrones God on our hearts and dethrones our selfish desires. Notice that in verse 5, Paul calls covetousness idolatry. When we are grateful, we put God in his proper place and we in turn kill the idols that are sitting in his place. The main idol gratitude kills is the idol of me. Covetousness isn't just about other things being idols in our lives. You name it. Money, sex, soccer, whatever. Covetousness isn't just about other things being idols in our lives. It's about us being the main idol in our own lives. That's why we focus on getting us things, the things we want. And if we focus on things, if we focus on the things without getting to the heart of the idolatry, in other words, if we focus on you dealing with your obsessions without getting to the heart of the idolatry, we don't deal with covetousness. For example, if you discipline yourself, I'm not going to be um, so attached to this thing in my life anymore. I'm going to stop coveting this in my life. You discipline yourself, and you discipline yourself, and you discipline yourself, but you don't deal with the real idol, which is I, me. I'm sitting on the throne of my own heart. You don't deal with that. You're going to end up finding something else that you're going to go after. And it could even be something, quote-unquote, good. And so we need to deal with the main idol, which is our own selves sitting on our own hearts. Gratitude says that I'm satisfied, I'm content with God. He satisfies all my longings. Covetousness says the opposite, that God is not an adequate treasure and that I must have other stuff. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious. Don't be worried about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with what? Thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. Gratitude kills Worry that is being fed by covetousness. I've got to have this. I've got to have this or that. If we are struggling with sin in our lives, particularly if we're struggling with these sins of sensual self-indulgence, then we have a problem being satisfied in God alone. And thus we need to be thankful. We need to be grateful. Thankful as we see God for all he's worth. Thankful as we see God change our appetites and open our eyes. Thankful as we dig deep and drink heavily of this book, his word, this testimony of his great works. Colossians 2, 6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up, built up and, sat and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Here's my last point. <clears throat> the putting off of unfitting, lustful self-indulgence and the putting on, here's the putting off, putting on, same motif here, the putting on of fitting gratitude does not happen as a result of strict moral training, but of a radical inward transformation. <clears throat> if you've begun to walk in love, it is not due to your ability to discipline yourselves, but due to the fact that you've been made into a walker. You've been given legs that can actually walk. Okay, if I, if someone runs a marathon, okay, he is a marathon runner. He has the ability to run the marathon. And 
so going back to our shoe illustration earlier, if I am running this marathon of the Christian walk, I can take no credit for it because before a transforming work happened in my heart, I was lame. I was lame. I was overweight. I was unfit. I couldn't even think about running the race. I had no ability in and of myself to run the marathon. But something miraculously happened in me, and I was changed, and I became a marathon runner. I was given new legs. I was cleaned up. I was made ready to run. Not because of something I did. Not because of some training that I brought about. I have begun to walk in love. We have begun to walk in love, not due to our discipline, but due to the fact that we have been transformed and made into walkers, those who can walk the walk of love. Not new morals, but new creation. Look back at Ephesians 5.3 again. Sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let's get back to our original illustration of what fits. Okay, The reason that this stuff doesn't fit in the Christian life is because the Christian has been made into something new. Okay, Let there be no foolishness, filthiness, or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place. The reason it's out of place is because the Christian is a different creature now. They're not fitting because we're new creatures. We've been transformed. It's not who we are. To illustrate this further, I I brought um, this out of the preschool room, all right, for the kids. Okay, if I have this shape here, it fits. The square fits into the square hole because it's a square. Duh, Mr. Steve. All right. But the triangle is not going to fit because it's different shape. And the Christian, Christianity is this. We were once this shape, and now we've been transformed. And if we keep living this way, we keep doing things that are not fitting, we're doing harm to ourselves, or we may prove that we were never transformed in the first place. And so that's the image I want us to have before I mess up the preschool toy, is that this, this stuff, we're, we're not shaped that way. It doesn't fit anymore. And, and it says that we're not even to be thinking about this stuff. If you go back to the, the passage here, that this stuff isn't even to be named among us. This isn't even to be named among us. Why? I'll tell you why. Because I found it in my own heart. You will begin to be, if you even begin to think about this stuff, or you begin to let it into your mind... It will desensitize you to its filthiness. It's happened in our society. It's happened in my own heart. 20 years ago, if you're watching TV and there was a, a scene or a, maybe a sex scene or something, or if there was a character 30 years ago, a character on a television show that was gay, it was a big deal. And it was a, it was a big deal. And people were upset about it. Much less if there was some sort of demonstration of that relationship on TV. Now it's all over the place. And tell me if I'm not wrong. If you're a TV watcher, that what used to bother you doesn't bother you as much anymore. Why? Because it's named among us. It gets into here. And we can become desensitized to it. And it's not that big a deal anymore. What once was filthy now is commonplace. That's the trajectory the world is on, and we are to be different, stand out, dress differently. We are to be going in a different direction. And so Christians, this stuff doesn't fit with our lives. 
We are no longer part of that family. Look here at the, at the mention of a uh, 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 family in this text. If you go back to verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Okay? And then we read in verse 5. Okay? You may be certain of this, that everyone who is... All right, now he, and he uses kind of the same words he used before. This time, not just verbs, he uses them in noun form, meaning these are practitioners. Okay, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So we are children of God, but those who practice these things have no inheritance. Therefore, children obviously don't practice these things, don't even name these things. We, why do they have no inheritance? They have no inheritance because they are not children. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 6 it says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the what? Sons of disobedience. So there's children of God who will receive an inheritance. But there are those who practice these type of things who will not receive the inheritance. Why? Because they're children, they're sons of disobedience. So don't let anyone convince us that the way we live has no importance. To, to say to someone that you can trust Christ and then live like the devil, that's empty teaching. It's dangerous teaching. Disobedient lifestyles are not compatible with the new creation. This verse says that the wrath of God comes down on the sons of disobedience. So there are two tribes, there are two families, two sonships. But let us also say this with clarity. The key to us not going to hell as a son of disobedience is not figuring out some sort of moral system to keep yourself from engaging in lustful self-indulgence. No. What does Paul say? It's not some adherence to some moral law. Paul does not take the opportunity here to all of a sudden say, do not be covetousness. Oh, by the way, Exodus 20 says, you shall not covet. He doesn't. He doesn't pull the sword of the Spirit and say, do not covet. The key to not going to hell, being a lustful, self-indulgent person, is that you've been made into a new creature and therefore you no longer desire to do these things and have been given a spirit, the spirit of God, and enabled by that spirit with power to overcome these things in Christ. You no longer live as you did before because you are different. And if you go on living in disobedience, you have no right to expect anything else other than wrath or hell. Wrath and hell. Therefore, verse 7, therefore... Okay, if you're a child of God, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. We don't become partners, partakers with these immoral activities because we're no longer in the same spiritual family. We are no longer the same spiritual species. We are new creations. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That's the reason. Our new creation is the reason that these things don't fit. It's also the reason that we should have no desire or inclination to partake in them. And it's also the reason we have the inward strength to resist them. Do not become partners. When he says this, it, 
It means that we don't actively partake in what they're doing. It doesn't mean we live in a bubble and we never run into people who are practitioners of sexual immorality. That would be impossible. Paul even said that, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such one. So we are to, we are to weed it out in the church. Not to eat with, we're having our fellowship meal today. If we really practice these verses, if we know someone is sexually immoral in this church, we shouldn't be eating with them. It's not talking about the rest of the world. You, you'd have to, you'd have to be living above, you had to be taken out of this world if you wanted to avoid all sexual immorality in this world. We are to interact with the world in such a way that we shine a light to the world. But at the same time, we must hold that verse in tension with, be careful with, not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with unlawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So being a partner with them may involve more than just doing what they're doing. It also may, we also have to keep our guard up against supporting whatever sexually immoral people are doing. And we can support that in a lot of different ways, sometimes just with our passivity. We must be different. We must be set apart. It says, for at one time you were darkness. For at one time you were darkness. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, I love this passage. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the, here's the part I love, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so now we are called to shine. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Look at this verse real closely. Real closely. For at one time you, doesn't say you were in darkness, but now you are, it doesn't say you are in light. It says, for at one time you were darkness, and now you are light. You were, and now you are. Paul is giving more emphasis here to transformation. It's not about where you are. It's not about your circumstances or your behavior in the midst of your circumstances. It's about your nature. Are you dark or are you light? Have you been transformed from darkness to light? It's not that I am light. I, I, am, I, I, I am acting a certain way in the midst of light and that I'm now in light. It's that I've been changed. I once was total darkness. I once was filth. I once was a rebel. And now I've been changed. I am light. I am a child. I belong to God. And so we are to walk as children of light. Again, the focus on children here. Corrupt character, conduct, and conversation can only be the evidence that we have not been radically and fundamentally recreated and transformed. Children of God live with ever-increasing victory in our lives over these filthy things. Ever-increasing victory. Doesn't mean we've defeated it all. 
But we have this ever-increasing victory happening in our life as we're being sanctified, as we walk as children of light. And so I want to get to the rest of this text next week because there's a lot of good stuff here as he talks about being a child of light. Verse 9, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. But until next week, when we can get to this text more, let us make sure that we are people who are wearing clothes that fit, that are fitting for who we are, clothes that bring glory to God, clothes that we were made to put on. Only through the transforming work of Christ can we even recognize the repugnant, rebellious nature of the old clothes. And only through the transforming work of Christ can we even begin to put on the new, which among other things is marked by genuine, God-centered gratitude. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel. Let's bow our heads and pray now as we close with prayer in a time of response and song. And so let's just ask the Lord Jesus to expose in our hearts, if we truly are light, to expose in our hearts any areas where we're still clinging to the darkness. And let's ask him now to do a work in our heart that we might be children of light, that we might know how we are called to live in this dark world, that we might understand that tension there between not, not associating with the world in the sense that we don't partner with them, but at the same time, being light in the world so that when we do have interactions with those who, who are part of the darkness, that we have, um, we have a lifestyle that's, that's, that, that, that preaches and proclaims Christ in all that we do. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you be with us this morning, Lord, as we close this time, as we close this um, time of preaching and this, this service this morning. And Lord, there have been many distractions in my own heart this morning. Um, not feeling well, and then microphones and different things like that. And Lord, I ask your forgiveness because that comes from the same place. It comes from the exact same place that the covetousness that Paul speaks of here comes from. And that is that I like to be my own king, and I want microphones to work. And I want um, PowerPoints to work. And I want pews to be filled up. And I want things to be different. And I get mad, and I get frustrated, and I get distracted. Forgive me, Lord, of my sin this morning of sitting on the throne of my own heart. And I ask, Lord, that you'd convict all of us in any area of our life. That this covetousness that Paul's speaking of here this morning, Lord, that we might understand it's not just about sexual immorality. It goes much, much deeper than that. But Father, we live in a world very similar to the Ephesian culture, where mankind is continuing to devolve into every sort of vile practice imaginable. You read some of the headlines. Oh Lord, even as I read this week, a well-known ethicist in our country believing that bestiality will be made legal within the next 20 years. It's absolutely astonishing that we are falling to these depths of depravity. But it's not surprising. So God, I pray that you would convict our hearts of any areas where we're 
wearing clothes that are unfitting, whether it be in our speech, filthy talk, crude joking, or whether it be in our conduct. May we learn to live as children of light, shining the light into every dark corner of this world, both with our conduct and with our conversation, and with hearts of gratitude that rightly put you where you belong, on the throne of our hearts. So now, Lord, as we respond in song, and we respond with um, prayer requests and tithes and offering, Lord, may you be pleased. May this be a sweet sacrifice to you. And Lord, may you take, um, take us and use us however you want to use us this week, wherever we go. If there be anyone here that just needs to talk and to pray with somebody, Lord, I'll be up front here, as will our other men are always available as well. So now we close this time, Lord, in the name of Jesus, we pray.